Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everyone, and happy Friday. I hope that you have all had a fantastic week, as usual. My week has been very, very, very hectic. I have been so busy helping out with little ones lately on top of all of my other podcasting jobs. And then on top of all of that, this coming Sunday, India and I are going to be representing Still Learning the Podcast at Barnes & Noble at The Grove in Los Angeles. So if any of you are in the area and you want to come say hi to me and India and hear more about the podcast, I would really, really love to see you all there. The event is actually for her friend who wrote a book, but India has been asked to come along and we've been asked to also promote our stuff and her book and I'm very, very excited to do that and I'm also so excited to see my friend again as well. I'm picking her up from the airport later today on top of some of my nannying duties. I have double nanny duty tomorrow and I'm taking care of a child all day on Saturday and I have a crazy long episode to edit for another podcast that's due on Sunday. So I am crazy right now. I'm actually crazy, but I like being busy as well. I feel like my depression really likes to blossom in boredom. So as long as I have a lot of things to look forward to, my mental health seems to be a-okay. On top of that news, I wanted to let you all know that Mad Gabin with Madigan is going to be starting next week, and the first episode is going to be more of a personal episode instead of something more along the lines of giving advice and so on and so forth. I really wanted to talk about the last six years because on Monday, January 22nd, Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist is turning six years old. And there's been so much that's happened in the last six years. There's so many topics that have been covered. There's so much that's happened in my life. And so much has evolved with this show that I really wanted to take a moment and look back on all of those things and share some of my favorite memories and some of my least favorite memories over the last six years with all of you. And I'm going to be saying this so much over the next week, so get used to it. I am so unbelievably thankful to every single one of you who has listened to this show. Whether you started way back in 2018, you found me during the pandemic, which I know a lot of you did, or you just found me yesterday. I'm so thankful that you have given this show a listen and that you enjoy it. It means so much to me. I really do put so much work into this. It is my true passion, and I hope to be doing this show or something like it literally for the rest of my life. Okay, with all of that emotional mumbo jumbo, if you want to hear what I have to say on Mad Gabin with Madigan, you can join the $5 level on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist, or you can click on the link in the show notes. But if you want even more goodies on top of that, you can join the Feminist Faves level, which is $8 a month. And on top of the Mad Gabin with Madigan goodies, you will get these episodes early and ad-free, and I am doing recap episodes after the main episode 
episode goes up on Monday. That will be in the feminist faves level as well. And I'm working on cooking up some other ideas and things that I really want to do on Patreon. But as I said, I'm a busy, busy bee. So I really do my best to give as much content on there as possible. But I do really, really appreciate every single one of your donations to the show as it truly does help it continue running. I truly could not do the show without every single one of you. And I really, really, really appreciate you. Again, you can go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist or click the link in the show notes. Okay, I'm done boring you all. Let's get into the news. I wanted to start off with an update about what is going on in Gaza. There has been a near total communications blackout in Gaza, which has lasted one week now, which is the longest of the war thus far. And it's preventing humanitarian and emergency services from operating effectively in the territory. As you should all well know, the circumstances right now in Gaza are incredibly dire. Attacks are happening continuously. People are dying. They are being removed from their homes. I'm not going to get into all of the history of all of this. I've spoken on it in past news episodes, but I'm hoping that you are well aware of the reality for the people living in Gaza at the moment. And having such a blackout is incredibly dangerous. There have been nine such outages so far since Israel's war on Hamas began after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. The blackouts affect both physical and wireless data connections as well as mobile phone usage. So no one can call out, no one can call in. They are like back in the before times, before telephones, and completely unable to receive the help that they need. Juliet Tauma, who is a spokesperson for UNRWA, the largest UN agency operating in Palestine territories right now, told CNN that it is nearly impossible to do the work that they're supposed to do. And on top of that, it's impossible to reach emergency services, like calling for an ambulance after a bombing has occurred. And also family members who have been separated cannot check in with each other to see if they're alive or dead. It's terrifying and I cannot imagine the anguish that these people are going through with the unknowing of what is happening to their loved ones. By cutting off the communication in Gaza, they are making the chances of civilian death so much larger. And of course, the Israeli government has not commented on whether or not they are responsible for these outages, but come on. I read on CNN that the blackout seemed to be coinciding with large military operations. And I highly doubt that Hamas is cutting off its own power sources. On top of these outages, when I was looking into updates on Gaza, I saw a story about a now former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Craig Mokhiber, or Mokhiber, I'm really sorry that I'm pronouncing your last name wrong, sir. And he has been the director of the New York office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights since 1992, but he has now left his post. His reasoning being that the UN is, in his words, failing in its duty to prevent the genocide of Palestinian civilians in Gaza under Israeli attack. He also cited the US, the UK, and much of Europe for being, quote, wholly complicit in the horrific assault. He wrote in a letter explaining his resignation, quote, Once again, we are seeing a genocide unfolding before our eyes, and the organization we serve appears powerless to stop it. 
The Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, also called the Genocide Convention, recognized that all humans are born free and equal in dignity and rights, and obligated all nations to prevent and punish those responsible for the atrocities of genocide. The legal definition of genocide was created at this convention, which occurred in 1948 at the end of World War II in response to the deaths of 6 million Jewish people in the Holocaust. They defined genocide as any five acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. The five acts are killing members of the group, causing them serious bodily or mental harm, imposing living conditions intended to destroy the group, preventing births, and forcibly transferring children out of the group. Mockaber has investigated human rights in Palestine since the 1980s and lived in Gaza as a UN human rights advisor in the 1990s. He also has experience working through other genocides in Rwanda, Bosnia, Iraq, and Myanmar. Okay, I actually did pause the recording and went to YouTube to try to figure out how his last name was pronounced because I felt really bad butchering it. And it's McIver. So speaking out after his resignation with Laura Flanders from The Nation, McIver said that he was disappointed to see some senior UN officials fall into the trap of the pressure put on them by Western governments and Israel lobby groups to silence the UN. He too felt the pressure to be silenced, but he refused. He also said that in all of his decades as a human rights lawyer and working at the UN, he had never seen such a clear case of genocide. He said, quote, The acts are things like mass killings. We have seen thousands upon thousands of civilians slaughtered in Gaza. They include inflicting harm on the civilian population. And we have seen plenty of that serious mental and physical harm carried out. But they also include this very specific act that refers to imposing conditions of life that are designed to bring out the destruction of a group in whole or in part. We had seen an explicit policy on the part of Israel over the course of decades with the closure and siege of the Gaza Strip, which is designed to deny the people of Gaza health care and housing and water and sanitation, adequate food and infrastructure, construction and freedom of movement, all of the things required for decent life as a policy denied to the people of Gaza. This is, historically, one of the clearest cases of that particular violation of the Genocide Convention. But most unique here is the degree to which evidence of genocidal intent, which is required for the crime of genocide, has been expressed publicly and on the record by senior Israeli officials in the political leadership and in the military. Laura Flanders then asked him about the Hamas documents about its intent to eliminate the Israeli entity and asked if we are seeing genocide on both sides. McIver states that it's also important to look at the country or group's capacity to carry out a genocide. The state of Israel has this capacity, where Palestine does not. In this interview, he also spoke on the media creating a narrative of this war as being a war between Arabs and Jews. And there has been a massive increase in both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, and said that this narrative is a lie, that Israel does not represent Jewish people when it commits these atrocities. And that's one of the most important things that I've felt during all of this, too. I like what he had to say. He said, Israel is responsible for its own crimes, and that responsibility does not extend to Jewish people around the world, and certainly not those who are standing up to say that this is not in their name. He also stated, I think we need to stand in solidarity with Jews who are fighting against this system. I think that's not where the line is drawn. Nobody's asking for Israel to disappear. What we're asking, as I said, 
is for apartheid to disappear. You can't do that without holding accountable all perpetrators of war crimes, crimes against humanity, regardless of who they are and in the name of all victims. We want to see justice for victims and accountability for perpetrators, but we want it to be done peacefully. Oh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for putting into words the thing that I have felt in my heart for months. I do not put the blame of genocide in Gaza on the Jewish people. That would be ridiculous. They, better than most anyone, understand the devastation of genocide. The government does not necessarily represent the people. We must remember this. And we are seeing that in this case. Jewish people are not the Israeli government and Palestinian people are not Hamas. We cannot villainize the civilians who are just trying to survive this catastrophe. And instead, we must make villains of the ones in charge, the ones funding the war and genocide, and the ones who remain silent in the face of devastation. There is no reason for genocide to occur in 2024, and we must have a ceasefire now and an end to this violence and cruelty. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, on another much more positive note, because I could not do anything serious after doing all of the research and writing for that last topic, let's chat about the Emmys. We are in award season, and you know that I'm going to be bringing this shit up. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the 2023 Emmys was its most diverse ever, as it fucking should be in the year of 2023 slash 2024. Five of the 12 acting categories handed out went to actors of color, which ties the record for the 1991 ceremony. Jesus Christ, the last time that happened was before I was born. The Bears' Ayo Edebiri and Abbott Elementary's Quinta Brunson marked the first time that the supporting and lead comedy actors' Emmys both went to black women in the same year. Brunson is also only the second black woman ever to win for lead actress in a comedy series, with the other being the Jeffersons' Isabel Sanford in 1981. What? Niecy Nash-Betts, also a hilarious person, how has she not won an Emmy for comedy at some point in her life, was the third black actress to win an Emmy in the category of Best Supporting Actress in a Limited Series for her role in Dahmer on Netflix, which, mm, that show is controversial. (laughs) She also had one of the best acceptance speeches of all time, in my opinion. After thanking Ryan Murphy, Evan Peters, Netflix, and God, she said, You know who I want to thank? I want to thank me for believing in me and doing what they said I could not do. And I want to say to myself in front of all of you beautiful people, go on with your bad self. You did that. Hell yeah, girl. Artists of Asian descent also made their mark at the Emmys this year. 
The show Beef, which has a predominantly Asian cast, took a near sweep in the limited series categories, and the Emmys were awarded to its lead performers, Stephen Yun and Ali Wong. Ali Wong is now the first Asian woman to ever earn an Emmy for a lead role. I'm sorry, what? This, I can't believe that I'm saying all of these things in like 2023, 2024, and I'm excited that it's happening because it's fantastic, but I'm like, really? Not until now? In non-acting categories, RuPaul's Drag Race host RuPaul extended his record for the most decorated person of color in Emmy's history with 15 awards and counting. Trevor Noah became the first person from the global majority to win an Emmy for Best Talk Show with his show Last Week Tonight. Also, the Television Academy recognized GLAAD with its Governor's Award for its pioneering and leading work for pushing for fair, accurate, and diverse representation of LGBTQ people. Another astonishing moment for me from the evening was when Christina Applegate came out as the first presenter of the night. She was welcomed with roaring applause and a scattered standing ovation, to which she responded to saying, You're totally shaming me with disability by standing up. She then waved off the young man assisting her to the microphone saying, I actually don't need him here. He's just really cute. Christina Applegate was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2021. And I just love this kind of attitude in her because I see a lot of my mother-in-law Barb in her. Barb has been sick with many autoimmune diseases for many, many years, and she really struggles in many similar ways that Christina Applegate seems to struggle. But she never looks for sympathy or coddling. In fact, she's the first person to make light of things or make fun of herself and even likes to bend the rules a bit so she can get the most out of her life. While I love that Christina Applegate is receiving this kind of reverence because she is a fantastic actress who has been working for years and years and years giving out fantastic performances, I don't think we need to give standing ovations to people just because they have a disability. Although I have to say it does feel nice to see everyone commending her for, you know, being so brave and wonderful and poised. I mean, I I just absolutely love Christina Applegate. If any of you have not seen the show Dead to Me on Netflix, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's got Linda Cardellini in it from Freaks and Geeks as well. It is so good. And she shot the last season of that show after her diagnosis. And it was a real struggle for her. But man, it she did just fantastically. And I'm so glad that she is getting the respect and recognition that she deserves. And I hope that she can continue to be as healthy as she is now and be happy. I don't know. I don't know how to conclude that. I just hope she's happy and healthy and well. Oh my goodness, I did not mean for it to be another little short, short mini here. I do apologize, but that's actually everything that I have for you today. You can get some more content by going to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist if you're needing a little bit more. And I cannot wait to celebrate the six-year anniversary with you next week. It's so funny because I have been kind of having to backlog some of my full episodes. I'm doing some ahead of time because I'm going to have a really, really, really busy month of February and March with a lot of my other projects that I'm doing. And so I'm trying to get as much work done for this show ahead of time. And I didn't plan on the Tanya Harding episode being a two-parter. So I was all messed up with my dates and I didn't even realize that this Monday was the anniversary, exactly the anniversary date. So I'm not doing an anniversary episode on the main feed, but I will be acknowledging the anniversary more on Patreon. So you can look out for that coming up. 
And also, if you enjoy the show and you think others would too, the other best way that you could possibly support me is by going to your Apple Podcast app and leaving a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It sounds silly, but it really does help me out so, 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 so much. But if you'd like to listen on Spotify, you can also rate the show over there. Won't be mad at it. Okay, all of you lovely ragers, that is all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye! Oh, my lord. Chicago history, you never learned in school. My name is Alyssa Dykstrahaus, and I am an architectural tour guide in Chicago. I got curious about my city's past. And it is absolutely fascinating. I like to say Chicago has been Chicagoing since they started Chicago. Over the past few years, I immersed myself in the more obscure stories. I am brimming with excitement to share these stories with my friends and you. Let's face it. Everyone knows about the Great Chicago Fire. But do you know about Captain Streeter and the formation of Streeterville? Find out about the origins of the phrase Mickey Finn. Oh, my lord, will be equal parts history, irreverence, and love of the greatest city in the world.